0: Life on earth ain't all as cracked up to be. You'd be fine if it wasn't for me. And I ain't saying we
1: can't get along. It's season to forgive you, baby. Welcome to Life on Earth Podcast. Uh, this is your co-host Adam, and I'm joined as always with Ed. And we have a special guest, Anya Hill. Anya, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. I'm really happy to join you today.
1: Wonderful. Uh, for the uh, listeners, I was wondering, uh, you're, a, you're a licensed physician assistant. We, uh, we have worked together in some prior capacities, but I was yes. wondering if you could maybe um, uh, go through your, uh, uh, I guess, expertise, if you don't mind, uh, or, sure. or, your, or your clinical interest, if you will.
2: Sure. Well, fortunately for me, my clinical interest is my areas of expertise. So, and then we can talk about my history and how I got here if you want to at, at some point. So my areas of expertise are tobacco treatment, smoking cessation, and I'm a nationally certified tobacco treatment specialist. And also I have advanced certification in motivational interviewing, MI, also known as health behavior change. And an emerging area of interest and expertise for me is Um, trauma-informed care.
0: See, when I hear you say those fields, I, as somebody who has an addictive personality in many ways, I instantly want to just start picking your brain on the topics of addiction. Um, My first question is when you specialize in something like tobacco, you know, do you find that the addiction to tobacco is necessarily different than the addiction to other things? And if so, what ways?
2: Um, did I mention that I've I also work in uh, um, opiate use disorder?
1: You did, you did. Oh, good.
2: Okay, thanks, thanks, Ed. So that's that's the question that I am often asked, and it really goes to in, in a in a sense, addiction is addiction because it works in the brain very pretty much the same pretty much the same way.
0: See, so often I think when people think of addiction that are not educated in the field. Um, and it, of course, this is anecdotal, but I feel that the conversation usually gets into the chemical hole that happens on people—the uh, withdrawals of opiates, the withdrawals of severe alcoholism or tobacco use, or the the, the chemical dependency. But mm-hmm. I have a food addiction. There's no chemical dependency necessarily. I know that there are parts of the brain that react chemically to the addiction, but I'm talking about the the chemical in the substance. Um, so you know the mental parts. What's so fascinating to me of the the compulsions and the different um, need, the the habitual need to partake in a substance or or some sort of uh, you know whether it be gambling or drugs or right, or yeah.
2: right. And so so much of it is the the brain chemistry um, and the brain electricity what occurs with addiction because you you mentioned gambling and there's other, there's other addictions that don't, don't involve an actual substance that we Mm -hmm. take into our bodies. And, and yet, and yet it plays out in the same way where people lose their relationships and they lose their money and they lose their jobs and their homes and their children. Not with cigarettes so much. Um, I mean they do lose their lives and it does affect their money and it does um it does affect yeah. Yeah, so I mean it does affect maybe, that of those things.
1: What's coming up for me is is the the link to trauma. So, you know, I think the substances are just a symptom to the underlying trauma. Whether someone chooses to use gambling or sex or food, um we don't, we don't really know why, why someone chooses heroin, why someone chooses uh, a food. But like you said, it's the same part of the brain. But I, what I have found, you know, certainly through my own journey and then also working in recovery, is, is there's always something a few layers deeper. And, and gosh, I have to think at least 90% of the time it's some sort of trauma.
2: Yes, and the studies are bearing that out. And so I, Uh, When I, because I I still see patients. I mean, I'm I'm currently um, director of of, uh, clinical operations at um, a Portland area uh, outpatient uh, MAT, medication-assisted treatment clinic. And so, Adam, maybe you have experience with this too. So when we're we're going through the history with the patient, like, you know, they're new to us and we ask them a series of questions. And one of the questions we ask about their opiate use is... Uh, Were were you in an accident? Did you have an injury or you had a surgery and you were put on Oxy, you know, and that's what happened? Or did you start using uh, recreationally? And I am, I'm either waiting or, and, or I'm going to begin to make noise about this myself. Um, That, that term, recreationally, so so many folks start in their early teens, mid-teens. With, uh, with opiate use. Have you seen that too, Adam? I mean, it's rare that I see somebody come in like, oh, I started using at you know, 38. You know, like, you, you know, you don't see that. And so there's no 15 or 17 year old who just on a weekend or after school thinks, what can I do for fun? I'm gonna find a bunch of kids who are also like, into like, hey, let's go like really into the darkness and find super sketchy people and we'll get some, what's that stuff, heroin? And then, you know, like maybe we'll have some needles and we'll start, you know, start self-harming ourselves. So okay. I would love, so this, that's my whole pitch about um, that, this notion that it's recreational is very, um, is very misinformed. It's the wrong word and it's the wrong approach to talk to people who are struggling with addiction to, to, to put that on them.
0: I'm glad you said that because I remember the war on drugs in the eighties and then the nineties, and they always talked about it in such an accusatory uh, blaming manner of if you're addicted to drugs, you know, just say no, it's so easy. Just don't do it the first time. And even the after school specials, they never showed somebody escaping you know, abuse or trauma. They always showed somebody at a party using drugs and then the next day they jump out, you know, the side of door. Yeah. Right. So
2: yes.
0: I always had that feeling too of almost victim blaming somebody who has an addiction of some sort. Even my own father who had alcoholism, part of me was like, well, just don't do it. And that's such a simplistic, immature approach. But I think that's what was fed into me. And then one day my dad sat me down and he said, listen, I'm not gonna lie to you about drugs. You know, people don't get hooked on drugs because they're a bad time. They get hooked on drugs because they're already experiencing a bad time. Yes. And I thought that was such a good way of him quantifying it to me. You know, he didn't try to sell me some bars. <laughs> and I felt that the schools and, and the general societal feeling about drug addiction or any addiction was so overly simplified that it was dangerous.
2: Yes. Agree. And that's, and that's what we see. Uh, so, you know, the, the brain even when you're a kid, like if you, you, you don't feel right inside. And so the brain is going to seek out very cleverly, whatever it is that will alleviate at least some of that severe discomfort.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I've had that conversation with numerous patients, especially when I pick up, I'm interviewing them and I'm picking up a lot of shame, yeah. uh, which doesn't always come through. Uh, it's it's kind of interesting because some people can be so matter of fact and that's fine. I try to always be in a non judgmental space, but when, when I just pick up on a lot of shame, it's like, yeah, I'm doing this substance and I'm spending $150 a day. And, and I just have to say, and and it's helpful, you know, it's really effective just to say, look, thank you for being honest. It helps me take better care of you. And furthermore, Mm -hmm. I think you're just someone that's not feeling well and you're just trying to make yourself feel better. I think we all are. So you know, um, and you're obviously here getting help, which is great, but like, um, you know, there's just, and that's part of this podcast, you know, is breaking down the stigma, getting getting rid of the shame. But it, I mean, people are doing these things because they don't feel well and they're just trying to make themselves feel better.
2: Yeah, I see, I see that too. And something that I, um, I, I don't get it right every time, but I certainly try to remember and incorporate this in, and when I work with people is when they're doing really well, you know, like they, they've been remain. you know, they're in recovery, they've been remaining, you know, sober, clean, as they say. And I also, you know, there's this movement to get away from, from, you know, clean, dirty, mm-hmm. um, get rid of the word relapse and replace that with return to use and just like more neutral, neutral terms. Yeah. Um, right. And so when, when people are doing, uh, you know, really really well by, by their, you know, assessment. And so, of course, I am congratulatory. And, uh, you know, if that's what they're, you know, what's helpful to them, or at least share with them, they're, that they're proud of themselves, you know, and, and remark, you know, I could take a lot of courage, you know, to, to, you know, to go through this, but to be careful, because then the opposite of that is, like, they come in, and maybe they have returned to use, or they're just really struggling. And so, I still want to welcome them and provide a safe therapeutic, you know, loving, therapeutically loving place for them, regardless of whoever they bring in that, you know, the self that they, that they bring in anytime, whether they, you know, like they feel like they're doing well and they're just hitting a 90 day mark or, you know, a, a three year mark, or they've returned to, to use and it was hard for them to even come in. So while we, while I acknowledge that, you know, they're, they're doing well, um, I want to be careful that the opposite of, Hey, I'm proud of you because you're doing well, that the opposite mm-hmm. of that is not, Oh, not doing so good. What happened? Oh, that's- because, because I, because I know the answer to that. Que- I know the answer to what happened. They used that's the answer to that question.
0: See, and I think that as somebody who's gone through the cycle of shame of you start to accept. No, I'm just a human being with, the, with something I have to work on and I'll I'll work my way through it that instantly gets replaced in my mind with that feeling of Well, I slipped up yesterday. I'm worthless. I can't do this. I might as well just give up and And you're right the the, the bounce back reaction of such pride on the days that you're good Which then you juxtapose your mind means you have to feel bad on the days that you have a slip up Do you feel that some people, I know that I see this a lot when I talk to addiction with people who aren't going through addiction, um, that there's the preconceived notion of if you give yourself that allowance to feel okay with yourself while you battle addiction, it's almost a cop-out. Like you're not taking this seriously enough or you're not holding yourself to a standard. You know, That's something that I really struggled with with my addictions was just when I would talk to people, they'd look at me like, well, you're just not strong enough or you just aren't able to and whenever I would talk to myself in ways where I was accepting of myself, people, that's just a cop out. You're just giving yourself, you know, the mumbo jumbo that people feed you. And I, you know, do you feel that you have to break through that stigma with a new patient?
2: Often, yes. And I also want to say uh, in regards to, to you sharing this aspect of, you know, part of your own life journey with this, that um, I, I'm just really feeling that. And I'm not going to say, oh, Ed, I'm sorry you had to go through that, um, but I want to say something like I, I acknowledge the difficulty that that, that is, and I just, I, just want to, I just want to acknowledge that, Ed, and thank you so much for, for sharing that. And the side note is that really drives me nuts when people, when people approach others like that. Um, you know, to look when, so if I look at a, at a broader picture of, of things, and so humans, just by the fact that we're here this time around, we're, you know, we're inherently good. Like there's, you know, while, while there are things that, you know, that trip us up and things that go wrong, you know, I have, um, you know, I have a generalized anxiety that's, you know, like pretty general, like it'll apply to anything at, you know, at any time. And, you know, a couple of other issues, um, However, there, there's nothing There's nothing inherently wrong with me.
1: Mm.
2: So, you know, so when people, when folks, you know, have a tendency or, or, and I don't know why they do it, perhaps they're struggling themselves and it, you know, it helps them to feel mm. better. And, you know, I don't know because I'm not in anybody else's mind. So I really try to stay out of, you know, that, turny twisty road. Like, you know, I, I have enough to say in my own mind, you know, <laughs> before I would go think like thinking what somebody else might be thinking at any given time. So, um,
0: See, yeah. and I always appreciate when somebody listens to what I have to say and then responds with their reaction to it because a lot, you know, I'm an untrained professional. I don't know what I'm talking about. So when I figure things out about myself, it's almost more dangerous. It's almost like giving a map to my 10 year old and telling him to drive, you know, from A to B, you're going to get lost. And that's how I feel sometimes when I do self-discovery. I love to bounce my opinions off people who are actually trained in the profession and they can hear the words that I'm using to describe it. And then they can assess and give their opinion. Even if it isn't my final answer, it may give me some sort of clarity that I wasn't able to quantify. So when you say these things and you're so big on like just acceptance and just being okay with it and, you know, appreciating, the ability to to speak about it it deflates me i can feel a physical difference in myself when we have this conversation and you're so accepting i just wish Mm. more people would be open to you don't need to judge somebody you just need to hear them
1: Uh, right and and and, and also like i mean thank you for your vulnerability Anya. and it's so interesting because you know it's not a secret i know you we've worked together in prior capacities and it's like it's I didn't know that you identified as someone that was anxious, you know, and it's like, and that's that's kind of what's driving me a little crazy, is I think we all wear multiple layers of masks and we're not operating at, at our authentic self. And it's to our own detriment, to our own self and our relationships with other people. And 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 I don't know if this is your experience. I have a feeling it is, but like going through the rigorous medical training we went through I mean that's weeded out really quickly like don't uh, just you know you, you're you quickly trained to, to not even uh, have any flaws basically and just be this completely uh, clean slate that nothing affects you but the problem is we are all human we are all flawed and I don't think we end up serving our patients better when we approach it from that angle. Um, so. And I think that's that's what we need more of. And I think, you know, to take it further, that's where a lot of the chronic diseases manifest from. Um, uh, just, just, just people not operating in their truth. I guess I'll leave it at that. But I mean, just it, it's just so interesting how I feel like I've spent a lot of time with you and I would have never picked up on, on you being anxious. Isn't that interesting?
2: That is interesting because I would say, but I don't expect people to remember like little snippets of situations that that just like are so cl- clear in my mind, mm. um, because most people um, really don't give too much of a crap about you know what I'm doing most of the time, you know. So, but but I am because I'm I'm the person living my life, right? So for the most part, other people like they're just busy living their own lives too, so they don't have that much you know like interest in noticing when when is, you know like really anxious. But having said that, so when, uh, so when Adam and I worked together pretty closely, which was really lovely, and there were a couple of times where I was really behind in finishing the documentation on my patient's notes. And so Adam would, um, and I think there was another provider too, who a couple of times would, would come to the facility and would see patients really quickly. And so that I, you know, so that I wouldn't get so bogged down in, cause I, cause I was just like, had to have everything like if there was a comma that had a, a space between the word and the comma like I would have to go back and fix that just like endlessly with everything and so so Adam I'm just gonna say that I don't and I don't expect you to remember one or two mm-hmm. of those times but that was just like the height of my anxiety like like just short of screaming
1: yeah, and anxiety is, is so prevalent and it can manifest itself in such a variety of ways. And I've already shared this a little bit on the podcast, but like bef- before I had my own journey into recover, I was anxious. And, and I know this seems crazy, but I didn't even know it. I had suppressed it down so much and I refused to buy into it that I, had, I be, because it, it had to do with, with my identity as a male. And if you were anxious, you were a wuss. And so I just refused to buy into it. And now that I'm on the other side and I went through what I went through, it's like, oh my gosh, I was an anxious wreck. Even though I didn't have an actual panic attack, I was living it like an eight my whole entire life. And no wonder, you know, no wonder things happen that happen. But sure, yeah, uh, yeah, it's,
2: you know, and I'm thinking too, as you're saying this, that, um, that, that really, speaks to or may speak to or partially speaks to that at least at least generally in the united states i'll speak for myself and my family um there we're not we're not like educated or trained and maybe we don't have you know like the modeling to whatever your feelings are you can feel them and then be able to uh present it in a way that those those feelings you know ha- have a name, and so then perhaps there's an opportunity to to have a familiarity with your own feelings inside of your own body that you're going to inhabit for you know your whole time here right mm-hmm. so yeah. you know, so being anxious but like never having never having that ever spoken or or maybe seeing it in somebody but not recognizing what it was, and then there's this you know, sort of injurious uniqueness to. Oh my gosh, am I the only one that just feels like the inside of my skin is itching all the time and I can't sleep? I guess I'm the only one. I don't belong here. I'm different, which which was my you know experience through my childhood. It's like oh, I'm, uh, and and I would never. I mean, I wouldn't say. I'm, what am I going to say? I'm really anxious. I didn't even have the you yeah. know the vocabulary for it, but I just knew that I wasn't that I wasn't right.
0: Just knowing you're not right is huge. But I, the funny thing about anxiety, the way I explained, I didn't know I had depression for years. And I always equated depressed with sad because there's so little education to people who aren't in those fields. So I didn't understand that it could just be a lack of motivation. It could be, you know, depression can manifest in some, so many ways as with anxiety. And because you're living inside of that, you don't necessarily even know that you're different all the time. You're, you're finding that there are things that are detrimental to your life. You find that you're you know, maybe using substances to calm yourself and bring yourself back to normal. But when you live with something as your norm, until you address it and fix it, you don't even always notice that it's a problem. And right. I felt like a lot of my addictions sprouted up before I was aware of who I was and why I was, what was causing my drivers to eat, to access, to seek, you know, pleasure center uh, filling at all times. Because I was depressed and anxious, but i didn 't know I was because I was, that was my normal that felt normal to me
2: right yes, yes so can uh, can we talk a little bit about trauma informed care I would love that okay so and I, yeah i think you'll find this i think you 'll find this pretty I was going to say fascinating, but at least interesting so Kaiser Permanente did a, a study a few years long and i mean and i I encourage anyone to you know, like, look, look this up on the Kaiser site. Don't just take my word for it because um, I might not have the dates or quite right. And I'm not even going to say percentages because I know that I don't have those off the top of my head and they may be different now, update it now anyway. And so, you know, within Kaiser, they, right, like they study everything, like they look at everything with among their, you know, members, their patients. And so here's what they discovered that, uh, so they divided into, uh, they came up with, with um, 10 domains of childhood trauma. And so this, this study is called ACE, the um, Adverse Childhood Experience. That's what it's called, Adverse Childhood Experience, ACE, the ACE study from Kaiser. And so they, they have six, uh, um, 10, 10 domains, I believe it's 10 domains of 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 trauma, and then they also make this point too that it may not be the actual trauma, that actual event, but it's how it's perceived.
1: Mm.
2: So two, right, two like very different things. And so, so those domains are, and I might only remember the ones that um, that you know that that were that were in my household. So um, they're you know like there's if if there's divorce in the family, but there's um, as a child. Uh, a, emotional there's like emotional abuse and then there's emotional abandonment so there's you know s- sexual physical abuse there's uh, emotional abuse there's emotional a- physical emotional you know a- a- abandonment where you're just not cared for you know really like they're not you know openly you know smacking you around but you're just like they're not you know this child isn't getting their needs met by the adults who are you know who are their caregivers and then um if there's uh I don't, I'm not sure if it's a parent or a family member in the home is incarcerated, if there's substance abuse, um, if there, if there is physical violence in the home, and if the child witnesses, um, I think specifically their mother being physically abused in the home. And so there's there's a few others there. And so... Depending on, uh, I think it's, and again, like maybe it's like two or three, like, you know, if you, if you have a couple of these, you know, then you're, you are more at risk. Maybe I mean, there's like 46% more at risk into your adult life. Maybe it was more than that. Again, please look it up. Um, two, as an adult have multiple marriages, uh, multiple pregnancies, um, More likely to be a smoker, more likely to have COPD, more likely to have heart disease, more likely to have diabetes. You know, just like all those those chronic diseases that we treat every single day. And there's a direct, direct relationship to childhood trauma. So if you talk about like how the brain forms, it's fascinating.
0: You know, it's so interesting when you talk about trauma and its role in psychological development. I'm so tired of hearing people talk about you're responsible when, until you're 18. Your parents are responsible for your mind frame, but anything over 18, really you're responsible for your outcome or you know where you are in life that none of the stuff that happened in your childhood really matters because you're old enough, you can get over it. Right. That type of thinking is so archaic. It can, every time somebody says that, my instant reaction mentally is you're not smart enough to have this conversation because that's <laughs> such a rudimentary way of thinking if you're not even open to the development and how trauma plays in in your development as a human being, I mean, you're overlooking some pretty huge factors.
2: here. Right. I mean, it's not, it's nonsensical. It's nonsensical to think that whatever occurred to you in your childhood day after day, or, you know, some acute event that that has no, that has no effect on you as you continue, you know, moving through, you know, your, your life as you this time. It's just nonsensical.
0: Do you hear that a lot, the pulling yourself up by your bootstraps argument for people when they come into you know, addiction counseling? Do you have right, well, that I, mind frame?
2: I will say this, Ed, that people may say it a lot, but I just don't hear it. I think what you said is, do you hear that a lot? It's like, I just don't listen to that part, so I really don't hear it. But I know people people say, what mostly patients um, come in is that other people are telling them that they yes. need to pull themselves up. You know, So they're not saying, I just need to pull myself up by my bootstraps or like, you know, my whole family, like they're, they're not going to let me, you know, come to, you know, like come to holiday dinner, you know, until I pull myself up by my bootstraps. But, you know, but not only are there no bootstraps, you know, there, there's no boots, there's no foundation. You know, how, how can you walk, you know, it's like, you're, you're asking me to, to, to walk in the world with, you know, with very functional boots that help my footing. But I, but I don't, I don't have the luxury of that. I'm just, I'm just roughing it, you know, like bare feet and my, and the soles of my feet are all torn up and my soul is also all torn up.
1: Right. I think think what's being alluded to, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. This is what I'm hearing is there's just this moralization uh, to substance abuse. And um, it's looked at by many as a character defect or a weakness and therefore, people think the result is working harder, pulling yourself down by the bootstraps. But the paradox is, in, at least in my experience, and I think you'll hopefully agree with this, um, interestingly, it's more of a letting go. Uh, and, and furthermore, it's, it's, more, it's, I mean, at least if you prescribe to the 12 steps, it's a spiritual solution, which, which is really
2: fascinating. Yes. Uh, well, I mean, I do. I just, I have a tendency, you know, to get metaphorical because, because I like it. Um, but yes, com- coming back to, to that aspect of it. Um, yeah. Because people do have, you know, people, people do quote, get better. People do people's brains heal, people's lives heal, people heal. I mean, you know, we're pretty, we're pretty, re- we- humans are for the most part, you know, fairly resistant. resilient Mm -hmm. sorry resilient yes but um i don't know i'm kind of i'm gonna let somebody else talk because i got a little lost for the moment here of of where where my thought is
1: well i have a question for you and uh i was i was this was coming up as we were kind of talking what so i know your your background was pretty extensive in the tobacco cessation um what what and, and then that kind of uh, turned into to the opiate treatment. And, um, but I'm always curious, what, what draws clinicians to certain things? Why does someone want to be a, a pediatric neurosurgeon? Why does someone want to work in recovery? What, do you, have you given it much thought of what drew you initially to tobacco and then into working in recovery?
2: Yeah, I think so. Um, I think a lot of it is the motivational interviewing, which I really love. And it's such a wonderful opportunity to talk to patients in in a different type of way than what we're trained as, as medical providers. And um, the brain chemistry of nicotine just is kind of crazy and I just really like it. Um, Side note, nicotine is the most addictive substance known in the developed world. So it's actually harder to kick nicotine than any of those other things. And patients, and maybe you've had this um, too, Adam. Where you're, like patients will patients will attest to that. That you know, smoking is the hard, the harder thing to quit. Like they're oh, able to yeah. quit these other things. I was like, oh, but I can't. I can't quit the cigarettes. Um, I was a smoker, but that that really had nothing to do with my interest in it. Um, so
0: that's interesting. I was sure that your answer. I mean, again, not knowing you for more than. 20 minutes, I was sure your answer would be that either was some sort of catalyst or something in your life that drove you to pick that field. But to hear you say that it was your interest level in the addictive process and in tobacco itself, that's so interesting to me.
2: Yes. And someday if you want, we can talk all about that. It's really, it's really something. But, um, and patients often ask me, um, you know, did, did you ever smoke? You know, as if like, unless, unless I was a smoker, I, I have no place to talk about tobacco cessation. And, you know, and I was a smoker and sometimes I'll fess up and I'll say, you know, that I was, and sometimes I'll, you know, like say something else. Um, and, and I I I understand that, that people with addictions aren't particularly trustworthy of somebody who's going to talk to them about their substance use disorder unless they have experienced it themselves. Yeah. And, you know, one of my analogies, and I'm not alone in this, is, you know, like I, I'm not diabetic, but I've certainly spent many, many, many hours, you know, through the years of being a nurse and practicing, and practicing medicine, of talking to people about diabetes. And not, I don't think one of those patients really ever asked me, are you diabetic? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think also it may, be, it may just be the way we... we talk to people i none so rarely so rarely do any of my patients ask me if i've you know been been on that that side of it but i do know that many of my patients just assume that i am somebody in recovery which yeah. is interesting you know that perception
1: i agree with everything you said about that metaphor with the diabetes i think that's a fantastic metaphor but i'm curious where you come down on this because as I've gone through more life events, I've noticed it's made me be a heck of a lot more effective practitioner if I've gone through something. If I've, even if it's something like benign, like uh, a, a skin condition or something. If I've actually had it or, or I've taken a, a, a medication before that I'm gonna prescribe for someone. I mean, there's so many different medications and, and I'm not a big a, a, a medicine taker. But
2: mm-hmm.
1: so on one hand, I completely agree with you and we're asked to do so much and know so much as clinicians. And yet the more actual life experience I've had, and as I've gotten older, I mean I was I was young when I graduated PA school. I was twenty six. And I hadn't had kids. So I mean, I think about all the well child checks I did and I knew like the things to say and the things to look for, but like it'd be way more effective now sitting down with a parent that's tired and stressed or and 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 then yeah for, for whatever reason in, in recovery there there does seem to be a lot of providers that uh that have worked in it and then they, they go back to serve which i think is really cool but do you agree with that life
2: i think that you know what i what part of what i heard you say several times in that was life experience and and, and tell me what you think of this. So life experience, and I think you also said it doesn't have to be the exact same thing, but just life experience. And so perhaps if we're like open to, to really f- feeling and learning from each life experience, then that just makes us more, can make us more amenable to, to listen to others' life experiences. So maybe some of it is the, the way we, we listen to people because we've had just, you know, a variance of life experiences, not necessarily the same as them.
0: See, and i think for me as somebody who again has been through a lot of counseling for addiction but never been on the other side where i was a trained expert in it i use that as a defense mechanism there's so much manipulation in addiction and so many walls people have to fight through with any addict and for me i had a bunch of built-in ones because there's this great quote i love um from saint augustine of hippo where he said give me virtue and uh give me righteousness, but not just yet. Like i still have other, I still have parts of my addiction that I know I'm not in a place to give up. So whenever I'd go to a counselor about addiction, I would talk to them and if they weren't somebody who had gone through food addiction specifically, or had hadn't had to lose a significant amount of weight, I instantly blocked them out of, you don't really know the journey. This is theoretical versus practice, uh, something that you've done in practice. And for me, It was really i had to realize later that this was my flaw that it was a manipulative ploy i was using to build that wall because i wasn't ready to face my addiction and i think that when hearing you talk about how you never really went through tobacco addiction yourself necessarily you did smoke but that wasn't really your main driver into why you chose that field as an addict do you think people have that barrier um and don't know it or do you think it's a defense mechanism you know why do people Hesitant unless somebody's gone through the problem, you know, why do you think that exists?
2: Um, yeah, I think so. I have a couple of things to say about it. One, of, one of them is it wasn't, it wasn't that I was a smoker that I don't think that, that clearly led, led me to this interest in um, tobacco treatment. But I was a pretty good smoker for many years. So I was a two-pack-a-day smoker for, for many years. And the only reason I quit was because I ended up in the emergency room one day nothing to do with smoking. However, they had to, uh, it was a cardiac situation. Smoking wasn't helping it. And they said, you, we will not even see you for a follow-up visit until you're off of those cigarettes for five weeks. And it was, it was a tough couple of weeks. Wow. So just to be clear about my smoking history. And um, as I say, in that sort of snotty way, uh, mm-hmm. but, but that wasn't, I, I really don't feel that that was what led me into to specifically this work. And so, and then, and you also, you, you know, you're saying that, you know, just not being ready or, or that, you know, that counselor, that medical, you know, provider, didn't have that particular experience themselves, and so i would you know so that you would use that as like no no i'm not going know, right always no, right. oh, me doing it it had
0: nothing right to no
2: done. yeah oh yeah yeah yes yes i'm definitely hearing that and so um right and so and adam tell me tell me your thoughts on this too because you know when folks come in there's there's various reasons of, of why they come in like maybe their family kind of like pressured them into it Or, you know, whatever it is, but just because they're showing up at the, you know, at the clinic or at, you know, the, you know, the, you know, your PCP's office or the psychiatrist or wherever, that that doesn't equal that you're ready or that you're willing. And so if I'm really being, you know, attentive to being accepting and meeting someone wherever they are at in that moment, then if they're not ready, then I'm going to respect that.
0: Wow. See, it's, it's great to hear. It really is great to hear that because I projected so much judgment on people that I know that's not what they were thinking. Now, sitting here, I clearly know that. In the time, I knew they could see through my bullshit because I know that my manipulative ploys aren't new. It's not something that every addiction professional hasn't seen. But I exacerbated my own situation by projecting judgment from them to me that didn't necessarily exist because – Maybe I thought I would have judged somebody in that situation. I don't know why necessarily, but to hear you so candidly say, no, you know, just because they're here doesn't mean they're ready and I'm not going to judge them or project that onto them. It's so refreshing to hear that out loud, you know, because so much of this is a battle of shame or battle of why can't I overcome this? Am I weak? Am I bad? Are people judging me? And to hear that, no, that's not the case, man you know that's not what's going on that's so refreshing
2: yeah thanks and and th- this is a tough one you know um oh, Ed, i think what you just finished your sentence with you know so like what what pe- like you i think you said like and that's not what people are thinking but i offer this so suppose that is what they're thinking so what
0: oh my locust of control is so far removed from me that i don't even know where it is anymore Mm. Um, I do, I externalize things in irrational ways. There are things that if you could live in my head for 20 minutes and see just how disconnected I was from control of my own mental well being at times, it would shock you. Um, I, I understand that my first step, actually, I've come to realize is not giving a damn what other people think of my journey, but just understanding that it's mine. And that's really hard for me. I mean, I've, I'm very open, I'll go to the gym sometimes and just sit in the parking lot and not be able to get out of my car and go inside just because I can't face going in there and being the least attractive person within 30 feet in every direction. You know, I just can't do that. And I don't know why that is because I don't judge other people that way, but I'm sure they're judging me that way. And I I understand in the next 20 minutes, we're not going to begin to unravel all this, but it definitely exists in my head. And I think for a lot of addicts, when you hear the the shame and the, the, I don't need anybody, you know, I don't need them. I don't, right who cares what they think well you obviously care right like, wrap your hands around that first and that's where i am in my process really
2: yeah and with most of my patients um like I, I i and i don't open with that you know it's like i know my family thinks this or you know i can't go i can't go to any doctors because they're all thinking this and they're all judging you you know like that and and perhaps some of them aren't but i don't open you know like i don't say to a patient, like hey you know what so what who cares mm-hmm. who cares what they think you know, for pe- for, I mean, like probably, I, I don't know percentages, but I'm going to venture to say for, you know, like a lot of humans, it, it, you know, it's not so easy because we're, we're groomed to, to care what people think of us and to project what we think they're thinking of us. And then to try to, you know, to, to try to, um, you know, adjust ourselves into a way that they will think what we think is thinking well of us. I mean, it's really pretty crazy making.
1: Well, that's where the motiva- motivational interviewing comes in, right? And it's, yeah. Is it accurate to say, I've studied motivational interviewing, but it's been a while, but is it accurate to say that the belief is that everyone has kind of the answer within and the motivational interviewer brings it out of them? So.
2: Yes. So you, yes. Thanks for, yeah. Thanks for mentioning that. So motivational interviewing is the, it's, it's a pretty big academic body of knowledge. And it's, it's very interesting. And it's very helpful, you know, to, to learn at least some aspects of doing this. But for just so for in clinical practice, and this is motivational interviewing, it is that every individual has within them, um, the, the desire and the willingness and the information for how, how to make change, how to make change for themselves, they might not, ha- you know, be directly, um, you know, connected to it. But it's innate. We, we, we all have that. So motivational interviewing is, so, you know, Adam or, you know, myself is, I'm, I'm just a guide. So I'm, I'm just walking along that person, whoever they are in that moment, wherever along their path they are at, to be a guide, to listen, and to, and it's a very specific type of conversation that's pretty much led by the patient, that their own inner knowledge and strength and readiness and willingness is evo- evoked from within. So they, they have it in them. So, so and that, that went along really well. So getting, getting into motivational interviewing for me was just a, a, a natural way of working with patients to turn to. So I was, I was a young nurse um is how I started and most of my patients were I was I was like 20 when I graduated from nursing school mm. and so um and so I learned pretty quickly that but it was a tough lesson but I did learn it that an adult and I rarely looked I mean I kind of barely looked like an adult then but an adult telling another adult what to do never goes well and so so I'm not I'm not going to do that like I'm not I'm not going to employ that method anymore of trying to fix somebody trying to tell them what they need to do or explaining to them how this is a how this is a health issue. You know, if just if people just knowing that doing something was bad for them and then they would stop doing that, that, this would be a very different world and Adam and I would be out of work for sure. So,
1: yeah, it's not it's not really about the knowledge. I mean, this has come up before, but I mean, people know mm-hmm. smoking is bad for them. And what I have found and this has also come up before, it's the for me for sure it's the stories. And that's why I'm so I love getting to interview my friends and other people. It's like, I want to hear your story. I don't want to hear something I can look up about right. the latest in addiction treatment. Like, right. yeah. I mean, you know, my ears perked up when you started talking about you being a young nurse and I'm, and I, uh, but I found that for, and that's I think why the recovery community works so well is people tell their stories and they share their experience, strength and hope and, and what they did and, and, and why that doesn't work. And, and, um, it, and, and that's, that's why it's so effective because people know it's not, it's not working out well. well right.
2: Um, yeah. That's why they come to us. It's not working out well. Yeah.
0: So when you're doing this type of interviewing, is this something where there's a quantifiable aha moment for the person who's facing addiction? Or is this more of a unraveling your drivers and your psyche and figuring out what it may be? And you might not understand it, but you, you start to go through a healing process. Like, because this is fascinating to me. I think this is this is outstanding. I want to I know more.
2: So it's very individual.
1: Okay.
2: Right? So somebody because because people are individuals, so it's individual. So how somebody processes information or somebody how processes their feelings or has a revelation that they don't even know what their feelings are is you know, and I'm 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 just I'm just there to be supportive. Having said that, it's it's a it's a it is a very particular um format for for how, how to how to guide a conversation and adam maybe you've had this experience so if i sometimes just let a patient tell their story it's it's on a loop right and it might not be what really happened it really you know it's, it's right. a story it's story it's just a lot of story and just that story and them hearing themselves say the same story where they're somehow victimized perhaps or you know whatever it is um is not particularly helpful so so it's as you know, again, walking alongside this person to where they they to give them that really sort of a, a safe place for an opportunity to perhaps consider themselves in a in a in a different way. Okay, does that make sense? Yeah, it does, and it's a too out there.
1: This is something
0: I'm sitting here taking notes as you go, thinking, okay, you need this. You need to start diving into this because I've had a thousand aha moments self-driven, self-discovery that didn't turn out to really be the catalyst for change that I was looking for. And I realized again, as I get older, that there are so many walls and um, protectors that we set up when we're facing addiction because of stigma, because for, for a million reasons. And sorting through that is is hard. And every time I think I have found that thing that kind of pushes me, Sometimes I realized that that was something I wanted to be the answer. And I found it because I put it at the forefront because that, if this is the answer, then I'm going to be okay. And I think I've started, and I want your opinion on this. This is something that I've just started to come to grips with is that I look at addiction much too linear where there's a start and an end. And once I get to the end, everything on the other side is I'm holding the trophy of having one. I got through mm. the addictions and I, you know, just to give you a little backstory in my early twenties, I lost hundred pounds. Why well, I have found all of those pounds. They're all back off. And mm-hmm. I realized when asking why, it's because I treated addiction so linear. I, I'm starting here. I'm going to end here. And once I get to there, success, I'm through, I'm cured, everything's better. And I found out really quickly that that was not the case. And, you know, as a professional, how much do you think people view their addiction as something with an end date or a, with, you know, a linear line of thinking instead of more of a, this is going to be an up and down battle for probably for a really long time.
2: Yeah. You know, I'm interested Adam, cause you know, you work more on the inpatient side and I'm the, yeah. you know, the outpatient clinic side. So what's, oh. what's your experience with, with what's Ed's posing?
1: Thank I, I think I have a good answer and, uh, and I'm, it, this is a this is a huge driver driver of relapse i see this all the time because people a lot of people come to initial recovery because of a consequence we've talked about that before you know they get really sick or they they have a legal consequence and they have to go to drug court but what happens very often and i've seen this hundreds of times already um people start to feel better they start to do a little bit of work they start to be 12 months 16 months 18 months two years clean and they feel good, and they get the job, they get the X, Y, and Z, they get their wife back, they get their kids back, and everything's going good. The problem is they haven't done all the hard work that you were just alluding to, Ed, the peeling of all of the layers and getting down to that authentic core of what went wrong. And they they do the surface level things, they do what they need to do to get it back, they avoid the substance, but they're not in true recovery. And then when things get going so good, they say, well, that only happened because I hadn't done this work before. I, ha- I hadn't, you know, done the meditation and the exercise, but like clearly I'm not like Joe Schmo over there and I can have a few beers or I can just, you know, mm-hmm. smoke a little dope on the weekend. So, I mean, I'm not like one of them. So and they start and they start and it spirals and it's a progressive disease. And I've seen that so many times, yeah. so many times. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So,
0: Go ahead. ahead. Well, I was just going to say the hardest part of when what you're talking about right now, even you saying it gives me a little bit of stress, a little bit of anxiety because there's this deprivation feeling of going without, and it's almost feels like you're punishing yourself when in reality, this partaking in the substance is the punishment because that's the issue. But for me, like just talking about the starting to eat better i instantly start to feel like well i'm depriving myself i really wanted these um a a, a whole pizza because that's what i want i want to indulge it it makes me feel good it makes makes me happy it increases my dopamine fills my pleasure centers all those things and now i start to feel anxious because that's not something i get to do and that might need to be out of my life and so when you talk about people relapsing with the idea of well i'm not like that guy. i can have a beer i'm strong enough to have one and then they wake up the next you know, weekend realizing they've been drinking for four or five, six days. That's where I get with food all the time. Is I feel this sense of depriving myself when I'm in reality, that's not the case. But it definitely feels that way. Almost like I'm punishing myself. And how bad must things have gotten for me if I can't even partake in this thing that everybody else gets to do and I don't get to do it? How weak must I? And there's almost this self-loathing. And I realize now that that's something that. I'm My brain is doing to give me permission to partake in the thing that I'm not supposed to be doing, and you know that part of the battle alone. When just hearing you say that, it makes me anxious.
2: Right, and so the the brain, you know, to to I think part of what you're saying here, Ed, is so the brain is always going to follow the path of of least resistance. I mean, like anatomically, it will, right? Like there's you know there's hills and valleys in there, and so if so so when and i'll you know like I'm, i'll talk about myself too so a particular way of doing something even though i know it's not like the best thing for me but i might get like an initial you know sense of reward and then you know like hate myself you know for the next three days but the the brain just wants that an immediate hit of of feeling okay right now feeling okay right now i'll feel okay right now and you know there's the analogy or the you know the the imagery maybe you've heard this too, like the lizard on a rock, you know, like the lizard on the rock is always going to be a lizard on the rock, just like basking in that little space of sun. So, you know, so there's a part of the brain that's like that reptile on the rock, you know, like just, just once what it wants in that particular moment, no matter what. And so when, when that area of the brain is, you know, deprived, like, you know, like you're going through recovery are you, you're changing anything. So like for me, it was to discontinue marrying people who were really bad for me had nothing to do with them, but I kept choosing those, bit like over and over again. Right. And so that was just like my normal, that was just my normal way of, of relationship. And so to make that shift to stop, just to stop marrying people was, was kind of, was like hard for me to do. Like I had to really work on it and I had a lot of therapy Around it. And I know there's a place in my brain, somewhere really deeply, where I don't know, like maybe I'd do that again. I don't wanna. I don't think so.
1: Right. So interesting how, you know, uh, I identify as an alcoholic and, and it's been open with his weight. And now you're sharing something about a marriage, and yet it's all, I can just see the parallels completely.
2: Mm-hmm. See, so when you
0: say that, it starts to make me think about the idea of you know everybody's looking for a cure. When you go to a professional, cure me. And I think for me, one of the other problems I had is I put so much of the of the onus on them of you're curing me. I'm here as your patient. This isn't my job. I sell software. You cure people. Do that. Cure me. Which obviously, again, flawed thinking. Um, this is my journey. They're there to help me with my process or, or, or to figure out you know what I need. But um for me, when I hear you talk about the learning to live with it, like that still exists. I didn't, it's not gone. My feeling uh-huh. of maybe this will happen again. It's not gone. It's learning how to find the tools to not allow those patterns to, to actually enter into what your actions are, I guess is my flawed way of putting it. No,
1: Ed, I, I agree. And I want to add something to that. And this is where, yeah. <laughs> I will be critical of the medical profession moving forward. I'm trying to do it in slow amounts, but I would say over half of providers have this wrong and they look at themselves as that way and their prescription pad. Oh, and and, 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 and doctors, PAs, practitioners, it's, it's very satisfying to try to quote unquote, heal someone. And that's a huge way of how we got into this opioid problem 10, 20 years ago. Oh, you're in pain, oh, just take this OxyContin. Oh, I feel better, oh great, oh, everyone feels good. And you get, you know, but what we found out was that actually wasn't working. So uh, most patients have that mindset and that's not wrong, but that's just ingrained in our society. And that's the way we're trained. Do, do you agree, Anya? I mean, and, and I think, Again, yes. over, over I, unless unless a professional is really in tune and really yeah, has big boundaries. Yeah,
2: you know, and we're kind of not really in tune. And so, yes, so, and we, we take credit for, for fixing somebody else. We take, we take the credit for healing. We're the experts. And so, right, so we know what to do. We know what to tell, you know, so we're very prescriptive, you know, when we give information. Like, this is what you have to do. I mean, it's not like we, you know, necessarily say it mean, you know, but I might say, okay. So this non-healing wound, this is what you absolutely must do to get better. You have to wear these compression stockings. You have to put this cream on 12 times a day, um, you know, or otherwise it's just not gonna work and you're gonna have to have another surgery. So this is what you must do. This is what you absolutely must not do. Okay, great. And then they either don't come back or they come back and they just you know are petrified because that nice provider you know, Anya said, she was really nice when she said, this is what you have to do. And then I didn't do it. And I know I'm supposed to do it. What, what am I going to say? How am I going to get out of this one? Right. So, so again, back to motivational interview, it's a very particular way of talking. And, and am I, so MI is a very collaborative, it's a conversation style and it's specifically to help, it's for strengthening a person's like their, their own motivation and their own commitment to change. So I'm, I'm not giving them anything. I'm just like walking alongside of them. Being supportive while, well, you know they, they discover um, for themselves, and so, and this is why I do a lot of lecturing on or presentations. I don't want to say lecturing, as I'm talking about like being being too prescriptive, right? Okay, so
1: it's also pretty. I, I, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead.
2: no, go ahead, Adam.
1: Well, it's, what's, what's, it's probably the other the other side of the coin as well. Again, I guess I'm going to come out a little more and harp on the system. I'm sorry. Um, but now, Now's the time. Yeah. Motivational interviewing probably takes a long time. It takes a long time to build that rapport, the trust to, to ask those non judgmental questions. You know what? What doesn't take time is writing a prescription and seeing more patients and making more money.
2: Sure. So um, there's to
1: get in the system. Go ahead. Yeah. That yeah. was my point.
2: No, no, and, and it's a really good point because motivational interviewing in, in the nineteen eighties when it was first developed, uh, it was actually first developed for um for alcoholics and nothing else was working. And so it it was developed for therapy, you know, like for counselors where you have, you know, 55 minutes, you know, twice a week or whatever it is. Well, we don't, as providers, we don't. And so um I, I'm I'm sure, I don't know why I'm sure, but um, perhaps other other providers who utilize motivational interviewing has done this, but what I had the luxury of figuring out at my time with one of our major hospital systems here in Portland, um, do, doing the tobacco treatment, um, is how, how to keep the essence of motivational interviewing, but make it efficient, and yet effective in clinical practice because i did not have time i mean i was seeing patients smoking patients all day and i was also training educating and training the the medical staff and the nursing staff of how to talk to your patients about quitting smoking and the you know and the pharmacotherapy for it but i didn't have time you know i didn't i didn't have 50 minutes i mean sometimes i barely have 15 minutes and so there it it is possible to to create to create trust and to create that bond in a, in a short amount of time. It is doable, but I absolutely agree with you. You know, if our choices are be prescriptive and just like tell people what they have to do, and then it's their fault if they don't, um, you know, that choice or like just taking so much time to develop this relationship with your patient and hopefully that works. So, um, neither of those are, are, well, one of them is just not effective and the other one's just not realistic.
0: See, I found that I, I was, became aware of the fact that I was racing for an answer, and it was because of insurance issues. I had counseling that I could do to work on my addictions, but I had four appointments paid for, and then they were 100% out of pocket after that. So even the systems setup for me was really detrimental to my ability to, to really dive deep into anything because I was... Uh, hyper aware of the fact that I have four hours to get to the bottom of what's been punishing me for a long time. And then finally I realized, you know, I spend $200 on ridiculous stuff every month. I can put that into my well-being. So mm-hmm. I, I, I've continued with the process, but I know a lot of people can't. There are a lot of people who can't afford
2: oh, right. to get into yeah.
0: counseling or get into see a specialist. And, you know, so much of we – I know I used to view my body as – my body and mind were one when really my brain is who i am that's the catalyst for all things fixing that first is going to remedy so much of what my body's facing instead of working so hard on my body and neglecting my mind and you know as a society i wish those things weren't so stigmatized i wish they weren't something that was so instantly shut down when you have a conversation with two non-professionals and i'm sure you've witnessed this a million times they both have their biases and their walls set up and their steadfast beliefs that are rooted in zero information. And they just sit and and butt heads about stuff that they're really not any equipped to butt heads about. And then they go off into the world to try to fix their problems without the tools, without the time or money to, to get these tools. And with these pre-programmed biases and now add shame and somebody else's judgment on top of that, you know, it's such an uphill battle and we impose this on ourselves with the way we address any mental health issue, let alone addiction.
1: Yes. I can get on uh, my soapbox
2: now. No, 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 no. It's a, no, it's a, it's a good, you know, it's a sturdy soapbox.
1: <laughs> well, it's just, a, you know, I just, I feel like it's just reaching a breaking point right now. I mean, just, just with everything happening socially. Um You know, I just think, yeah, you know, we found all these drugs in the seventies and eighties, and then you know opiates got really popular, and it's just like I mean, if you look at the chronic disease statistics i mean it's just it's just out of control, and i just i, I just I just feel like the system is just really, really bending, and um it, it, it's it's just a, it's just a huge problem and then and then having this dramatic shift in this infectious disease you know that essentially brought us to our knees our system was not ready it just exposed how little we know I mean it's, it's just kind of this perfect storm brewing and and I, I just get, people are just like getting fed up and I'm trying not to like reflect my own personal journey onto the, the population as a whole but I just I just feel that like patients are just like I I'm not getting what I need from 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 uh, the medical system and I'm and I'm sick and tired and, and sometimes they go out and they try these other things because again they don't feel well you know more power to them but there's just so much data out there online and there's so many other charlatans that are going to take your money and do you know uh, other treatment which can also be uh, ineffective so I mean it's just it's just kind of a mess that's happening I just I just personally think it's it's Just going to continue to get messier unless there are dramatic changes in the system. Am I crazy?
2: Well, that's a separate issue, Adam.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say I can answer that part. (laughs) I I have
0: no idea. When you said people can go out and find it online, I instantly like shivered because just the food. And I'm I am absolutely one of the people who have fallen for the snake oil a million times. You have no idea how much money I've spent on quick fixes, books by charlatans videos on youtube magic pills you know i am 100 susceptible because it is the quick fix idea i don't want this to take a year i mean granted i've been dealing with it for 42 years but if it takes another year for some reason that's too long for me and i think a lot of it's our expectations of wellness what does wellness look like what does healthy versus unhealthy look like i think even our starting point as patients is so skewed to reality that, I mean, I don't know what what part of our society is, is being failed, if it's, you know, the stigmatized conversations that people aren't having, if it's the lack of education in K through 12 about mental health and about physical health and wellness. But there's definitely a disconnect between what my steadfast beliefs at 25 were and what I'm starting to realize at 40 was the reality of what the the body and mind are going to go through in the journey.
2: Yeah, it's well stated. Uh, So this is what I, this is what I try to do every day. So this is part of just my, my, you know, purpose here, this time around is me, you know, every day. And again, I don't get it right every time but is to be cheerful and helpful and a good listener and to show that I really care because I actually really do. And to, you know, have an awareness of the time because I do work in the world, right? You know, Adam, like, you know, we're in the clinic or you're in your, you know, your facility. And, you know, to to be present, and offer offer what I can, in a way that is respectful and kind. So, and what I you know, and and I'm limited. I have a limited arsenal, in, you know, and what and what I can offer. But that's that's what I that's what I have, you know. And patients, Adam, I'm sure you've had this a lot too. You know, I'll, I'll say, well, you know, there's a couple of options here. And we'll just say, well, you know, I don't care. I don't know It's like you're the doctor and, um, and, uh, you know, or, or you, you, know, better than, you know, like you're, you're the one here, you know, better than I know. And so I, 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 remind patients that while I am, well, I'm, you know, like the expert on, on what's available in the medicines and how to dose it, you know, and how the brain works that, um, you know, I say, but you, you know, you're the expert on you. Like I I spend what, maybe maybe 15 minutes, you know, every two weeks with you, but you're you're living yourself, you know, every day. So you're the expert on you. I bring some suggestions and recommendations and a couple of options, and I'm not going to present an option that's dangerous. So, you know, like at worst I have 1.5, you know, options, you know, at best, maybe there's, you know, like three and then, you know, just like, think about it. Think about what what you feel works best for you for now.
0: See, I love that. Think about just when you set listed off those things that your goals are to be, you know, there, present, accepting all those, just that alone, when you're facing something that's so stigmatized and that you are punishing yourself over and over again, just those are refreshing. I mean, I don't know that I've, I'm not trying to blame, put blame on my previous providers, but those aren't things I've ever could say I felt leaving a room. And just those things are so such a relief to hear because this is a stigmatized thing. This is a self-punishment thing. And it's beautiful to hear someone say, you know, but you know, I, I want them to not feel that when they're with me so that they can get a level of healing. Cause I found through counseling, I wasn't an expert on me. I had I was an expert on what I wanted me to be. Mm-hmm. But what I really was, I don't even think I had a GED in it. I don't think. I was barely in touch with, oh, there's a lot of stuff going on in my head that I really blocked, that I didn't want to be true, that I didn't want to be, have to face. And that, main, that mentality a lot was built in a lack of comfort to be vulnerable with my care provider. You know, I didn't feel that I would be accepted because I didn't necessarily accept my own issues. And so to hear you say that is such a relief. I mean that alone can help people so much in being open and vulnerable and really doing some self-exploration.
2: Yeah. It seems to, and Adam, you know, you probably do this too, you know, cause patients will, you know, start telling, you know, telling the backstory about why, you know, like they returned to use or almost it or whatever it was. And then, you know, and then there's a whole, you know, tale of, you know, there's a whole story about it, which, you know, doesn't, you know, doesn't particularly helpful and doesn't, doesn't have anything to do with my medical decision-making, you know, for that, that session but um so i i mean i do hear myself say this to patients really and it it sort of saddens me that i hear myself say this to patients so pretty frequently which is this hey you don't you don't have to justify yourself to me you're you know like you're you're an adult you've survived this far you know you don't you don't have to explain yourself to me or justify your actions to me and that they tell me is a huge relief that they don't have to like start weaving this tale, you know, otherwise they're going to get in trouble. It's like, I you know, it's like, mm, mm, I
0: sometimes wonder if I do that more to get acceptance from me. Like I have this long winded tale. I tell of all my reasons why this has happened again or is still going on. And I use it to justify to other people, but sometimes I think I'm really justifying it to me.
2: So know? what would it, so I'm really curious Ed. so what, so, what like what would it take to feel okay or or, you know quote justified without telling a without telling a tale
0: i don't know um honestly i live in two really distinct worlds that seldom collide um i spend half my time in total acceptance of myself where i don't care you know that i'm overweight it just doesn't matter to me because I can love myself in a way that would be seen as almost arrogant. And then there are times where I feel like I've let myself down, where I should be better than this. I hold myself to a standard in so many ways, how I treat my kids, my profession, so many other arenas. But for some reason, my physical health, I just have shit all over for 42 years. There's a, I don't know what it could take to make me feel better. Cause I, you know, all Benji, it will happen again. And I've, I've eaten perfectly for six days along the guidelines of what I think a good consistent lifelong diet should be. I will binge eat. I know what's going to happen. I don't know when, I don't know why, but it will happen. And I don't know that why, but I will punish myself greatly. I will self loathe a lot after that happens. I will feel like I've let myself down. Like I've let down everybody who gives a shit about me because a lot of people stand in line to pat me on the back and they all want me to succeed. But I'm going to fail again and I don't know why. And I, 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 honestly, I wish I did. I think knowing that would help me greatly.
2: So it's, it sounds, and correct me if I'm wrong, cause I'm, you know, like I'm, I'm certainly wrong sometimes. So that it sounds like, cause I heard you say, you know, when you succeed and when you fail. And so it's, so it sounds like f- failure feel, quote, you know, not, not, not maintaining your healthy approach to food, um, when, when that shifts, then that, it sounds like that equals failure as, failure as, as Ed.
0: I don't know where this came from in me because my parents, my dad never really had this view of life or for me, and I don't know where I formulated it from. Maybe it's a, my relationship with my mom more. But I have really clearly defined, you know, if I'm outside of my BMI, my ideal BMI, or if I'm outside of my physical fitness, and and where all my you know stats are in the great green, you know, my cholesterol is good, my um, blood pressure is good, all those things are operating you know the way they should, and I can buy pants you know off the shelf. I don't have to special order them. You know, those type of those are very finite things those are those are something you could write down on a piece of paper and if i'm not meeting those goals then i'm failing by definition in my own mind you know if i'm not meeting those goals or if i'm not sticking within my 2000 calories a day and getting my 10000 steps those are definable goals those are quantifiable measurable goals and if i'm not reaching those by definition i'm not in my own mind i'm not winning the day i'm not succeeding i'm failing because i didn't reach those tangible goals and i don't know where that came from because in i don't hold other people that standard you know if my son comes home with a c but i know he worked and he that was what was in him that day you know i'm good job man you know i don't hold him to well you didn't get an a and that's what's defined i don't but i do me i do i hold myself to that i feel like I think a lot of it is I have this weird fear of letting other people down too, because there's a lot of people in my corner. There's a lot of people who really want me to be healthy and happy and feel loved. And when I let them down through not living up to potential, it really, I wear that very heavily.
2: Yeah. I hear that. I hear that. I have a question about your son. Can I ask the question? And you can say, after I ask the question, you can say, no, I'm not. No. So Wait, so first of all, so can I ask this question about your son and then you'll say, okay, Okay. all right. That's what my brother used to say. It's like, you can ask me anything you want, you know, you're likely you won't get an answer, but you can ask anything you want. Yeah. Um, so, so your son, like if he comes, if he comes home and he has a grade of a C, you know, but, but he worked hard and he got a C, good job, great. But suppose he comes home with a C and he, and he didn't work hard. Is a C still okay? I mean, so a C, So does the C have conditions? Like a C is okay if you worked hard, but a C is not okay if you didn't work hard.
0: Um, What I tell him is he was blessed with a lot of gifts mentally, physically. I mean, he doesn't have the big, strong stature. When I say physical gifts, he's in great condition. He's healthy, happy, well-adjusted kid. And when it comes to academics and knowledge, just, education, understanding of the world and what's around you, and being informed, those are very important things. You need to hold yourself to a standard that you feel is appropriate. And if you think not paying attention and getting a C is good enough, you have a whole life to live. Is that gonna be good enough forever? Is that going to be good enough when you have a career, when you have a family, when you have kids you're providing for? You're setting those skills up now. So when he comes home and he hasn't applied himself for a C, I don't punish him, but I'll have that conversation with Abe, this is, you know, he goes to an arts and communications magnet and he's really gifted in, in writing. And I'll say, you were writing a story and you got a C on that. You got a C on a story you wrote. Is that the best you could have done? Did you do this in good faith? And he'll look at me and say, you know, no, I didn't, you know, that's something you got to reconcile with yourself. Babe. Did you do this in good faith? And that's very much how my dad was with me growing up was he didn't punish me for bad grades, but he'd ask me, did you do this in good faith? Did you do this in a way that you were wasting your own time by not really going through with the exercise? Or did you do this in a way where you had intention to learn something?
2: So then, then it sounds like the, the answer is no. So if mm. he, by somebody's standards, didn't work as hard as he is capable of doing and comes home with a C, then no, then no it's not okay.
0: It's it's not okay. I think that's fair. I think it's not okay. I, I think that he has a certain amount of responsibility to himself to, you know, I'm not gonna punish him for a C, but is that really who you are type questions. Maybe that's
2: me. How, how, that how old is he? How old 13? is he? 15. Hmm.
0: And I sometimes worry that I'm projecting my own issue because, I mean, you, it doesn't take a very, you know, intricate path to find the parallels between me asking him if, is that, is that really who you are? Is that the best you could have done versus me with my weight? I mean, that's the same question I ask myself, but no much more sternly worded version. I'm older. I can handle sterner words than he can.
2: Yeah. I mean, would you be willing to consider that asking, is this really who you are? Is, is, is really me saying, I, if this is really who you are, it's not good enough. If this is really who you are in this moment or in the moment that you got that C, whether you worked hard or not, uh, that's, fair. Maybe that's not good enough.
0: That's fair. I mean, I don't want it to be fair, but it definitely is.
2: Um, yeah.
0: I would say that I can see where I, he could draw that, parallel of well if this is who i am dad's saying that who i am isn't good enough i can see that
1: absolutely we should do a spin-off podcast called therapy with ed (laughs)
2: yeah
0: i would be i actually was thinking that i take notes during all of our podcasts and when you were talking about the guided conversation i would be very open to doing something like that you know, paying for your time, you're a professional, and it's going to be therapeutic for me, but have me sitting with you and just recording what we came up with.
2: Oh, wonderful.
1: I'd be very open to that. Well, I'd love to. It's, it's amazing to, to <clears throat> hear you work using, using that therapeutic wonderment. I mean, that's, that's such a superpower. Um, and, and, and I had a, a visceral response to a, a, a couple minutes ago when you shared and, and Ed had some, you know, really appropriate follow-ups, which were beautiful, but mm-hmm. you, know, you talked about when you wake up and, and being present. And I mean, I just, that is such a simple concept, but it's actually such a superpower like to really be able to, again, simple concept, but to actually be able to do it is is so hard. And I was just curious if you have, an inkling on where you got that. I mean, I think some people are born with that and they're just special. I mean, for me, I I know I had to go through some stuff to be able to work on that skill. Do you?
2: I know exactly where I got it. Ooh. Yes. Oh my goodness. I'm just getting chills that you asked this. So when I was a little girl and uh, my mother, uh, who I'm now very close to and our our relationship was healed after she passed, which I'm very grateful for that. But it was rough. It was a rough time in that house. It was in the you know late 50s, early 60s, and so there weren't the medications available for you know clinical depression, and so she really suffered, and it came out in the worst ways. So down the hall every morning, uh, when she awoke, this is what I would wake up to. My sister and I every morning would wake up to. Her her waking up and saying, oh, God damn it. And that was her greeting to the day. Mm. And so I, for some reason, I think it was truly angels watching over me. I had such an awareness of that, but part of my awareness was, I don't want to wake up cursing the day because then the day's not going to go well for me because the days often didn't go well for me. And so I this is one of my first ex, what I call experiments, explorations and exercises. So I thought I'm going to do the exact opposite. I don't know if it will make anything better. And so I started as a kid when I would wake up, I would say good morning. And to this day that's what I when I wake up I say out loud, good morning. Mm-hmm. And that really shifted my brain chemistry around.
1: Thank you for sharing that. That's so beautiful. And it's, it, I, I don't, I, I hate that it is this way, but I, I have no doubt that there were, there was some pretty deep trauma. I mean, I'm, I'm picking that up on, on what you had to go through. And, and I don't know why it often is that way. I don't think it's always that way, but it's these trauma and the suffering and coming through on the other side that gives us that ability to be present and help others. I just, I think that's, that's really cool. Thanks for sharing. Yeah,
2: Thanks. And I th- I think, you know, I think maybe back to your first question, or maybe it was a, um, a question, a part of a conversation, you know, before we started recording of like, what, what, you know, for you, you know, for you too, Adam, you know, like what, What led us to going into this line of work, which is, you know, on our best day, really being effective and helping other people?
1: Are you asking me? or is it just the,
2: uh, Well, uh, I'm, yeah, I mean, well, <laughs> you know, yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And I don't know if we have time, you know, like to, because re- yeah. that's going to be like something to, in fact, like let's not start it today because that's something to, to really delve into. And since this podcast is right at, I mean, it's like, you know, like people who are in the, yeah. in the, the health, the health arts. Um, and just kind of like our, our journeys through that and the personal, you know, the personal yeah. part of it too. Yeah. Cause that's something to really. Let's bookmark it. Write
1: it down, Ed. Yeah. Please, of course. <laughs> it is. And the other thing, I want to do another bookmark. This isn't lost on me because I've heard you say it about three times. You're saying this time around, this time around, and I just, I love that because that's oh. kind of been my truth that yeah. we've been here before, and yeah. and we may come back. And you know, I've shared this with Ed and a little bit with the listeners, but I mean, uh, I've gotten into the woo a little bit, and I'm. I'm I'm a little reserved. I'm trying to straddle that line between being a licensed medical professional and being able to keep my license and not talk too right. much about multiple dimensions and multiple lifetimes, which you know, I don't think that will get my license pulled, but there, there comes a point where you kind of have to be careful. Um so I I hope we can explore that a little bit more in a in a
2: I'm yes, I I hope so too. And just saying that, and perhaps this is the note at least that I'll finish on is um, folks struggling with addiction, at least, at least my patients, you know, like over two and a half years of opiate use disorder. And maybe you have this experience too, Adam, is many of them will sort, you know, like they're, they're an intuitive, thoughtful, you know, sort of people. I mean, they're, um, you know, they're, they seem to be, in, in not all of them, but I mean, I have to say, like most of my patients, like they, they have an awareness of, they have an awareness of like, um, you know, just, just, you know, it's an emotional world, you know, and, it's, and part, part of what their pain is, and maybe as a kid, and I've, I've had patients tell me this, now I'm kind of wondering, but I've had patients tell me this that when they were kids they would see colors around people like basically Mm -hmm. like you know crs and stuff or they would they would see something or they would you know like see a glimpse of an angel wing or something like that and they were told like you didn't see that stop being crazy that's not real and so early on they are instructed to disconnect from you know from that really just really gorgeous place of being a kid where where you may have access to that sort of thing. And if you don't, and you think you see an angel wing, like why are the adults telling you now?
1: Yeah, that's, that's a, that's a a huge thing with working with addicts is I, uh, I see them as a beautiful uh, empathetic people that are suffering. And like you, you know, you said, not all, I mean, there's, yeah, you know, but it sure. just depends on where they're at in their phase. Of, right. You know.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Empathetic. Yeah. Thanks. That 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 was one of the words I was looking for. Yeah. They really seem to be in tune.
1: Really for sure. Tune, and yeah. I, I thought about, I've reflected on this a few times since it came up. I, I don't know if you will remember, but it's kind of an interesting uh, chicken and egg thing. You and I, as you mentioned, worked together quite extensively for a while. And yeah, I, I had shared with you some personal things as you did as well. And I shared with you that I, was a child of an alcoholic and uh, and I said there was something I just brought up about being perceptive. I don't remember the details, it doesn't matter, but you're like, well of course you are. You're you're the son you're the son of an alcoholic. But the interesting thing is back then I took it as like, well was it was it being the son of the of the alcoholic that made me perceptive or or what, where am I getting? What was it actually was it actually being in in the traumatic situation or was it just the fact that I was born with some other genetic thing? You, you know, was it was it the actual trauma or was it, is it something else going on? It's not, it's not coming out as clearly as I, is it was. I, it I,
2: I, think I I I feel that I have a, a sense of what you're saying, what you're getting at. And I think that's something that, um, if people feel comfortable, I am more than happy to explore about you know, just the, who, who we are in the family and, and uh, you know, it's not in, in my, in my thinking, like, it's not just random that this is the dad you get, this is the alcoholic dad you get this time around, you know, like you, you know, with, with genetic or whatever, or ancestral, you know, genetics, whatever it is, you know, you coming in this time as you into the, into this particular family and these particular people, um, right. you know, shapes your life and, and, and their lives too. And everybody has everybody has an opportunity to to, you know, to, to, live, to live that out.
1: Right, so thank you for jogging my memory. And where, where it was at was like, where I took it years ago, before I had gone through anything was like, oh, I was born as a clean slate, which I don't believe is true now. Mm-hmm. And I was subjected to, to, my, to minor trauma. You know, was, I was not a, a major trauma, but it was the micro traumas of, of being in an alcoholic home, you know, no yeah, physical sure. abuse, but yeah. that's what gave me the power. But power is not the right word, but the, the perception, if you will, mm-hmm. or the, the empathic um, uh, strength. And now I actually believe that I was probably born with certain gifts and mm-hmm. that I was feeling too much pain and I was trying to numb it out. That's exactly what it is.
2: There you or go. it could be
1: a little of both. You could be born with it and it could be uh, strengthened because of things you go through. Yes. You know, the deeper the sorrow carves, the more joy you can contain. You know, I love that
2: quote. Mm, yes. Yes. Ed, are you still
0: with us? Honestly, I am. I'm already intrigued by all of these topics. This isn't something new for me to to follow. So, you know, I have a lot of personal beliefs rooted in not a lot of enough information, but very much along the same lines that you are, because there's too much intuitive that we're born with. There's too much that we already understand or don't understand. And there's too many coincidences for it all to be our first go around. And I've, yeah. I've believed that for a very long time, that everybody you run across is there for a reason in your journey. And that reason may be just to learn what not to do or what you don't want your life to be like. And, and some of it can be to help uh, strengthen things about you that you really appreciate. Um, I've been dwelling a lot on the, my wording with my son since we talked about that part because mm-hmm. you're right. So much of my wording could be where I've seen myself as being – Um, motivational, I could be detrimental. And maybe I'm in his his life for that same purpose or reason of things he can learn. And I should be definitely more aware of that, that I might be, it might be a bigger reason that we're father and son than just, you know, what I can see and and perceive.
2: Yes. Um, I would like to mention one more thing, Ed which is i think adam's heard me use this terminology a bit so it's this i would like to invite you to consider giving up the word should
0: i'm open to it i mean absolutely
2: yeah have you ever heard this saying i think it's i think it's really adorable i'm too old to be should upon
1: Oh. I haven't heard that, but that's fantastic. I
2: know. It's so cute. Yeah. Un- unpack that though, uh, if you don't mind
1: Anya. why, mm. why should you not use the word should?
2: <laughs> why should you not use the word should? Uh, <laughs> uh, Cause it's a pretty direct implication that what you're currently doing is, is somehow wrong. Yeah. So I need to be doing something. I, you know, like I should be doing something else. Well, how, how, how come? Well, because the way I've been doing it is like wrong. So like, you know, I can't figure out how to do things right. So so it's not right or wrong. There's just there's just different you know, there's just different ways of of perhaps, you know, doing things. And and trying something. If something feels like it's not right, or maybe it feels right, but it feels too right and I become rigid, I'll just try an experiment. Sometimes it's really hard for me. I'll just like try an experiment of doing it just like a little differently. Not in a way that's gonna hurt anybody or myself, of course, but just like saying like using maybe different like a different word or just stepping out of how i you know my usual cadence you know to wake my brain up a little
0: bit it's funny you say that because i was i've always prided myself on the fact that i'm i'm open to the world if somebody called me tomorrow and said hey let's go do this thing it doesn't matter what that thing is i'm interested let's go do it see what the experience is on the other side because i don't need an event i want to be the event and that's kind of how I've lived like never accept somebody else's definition of what, what the process should look like. And Adam and I have talked about this before in yeah. terms of parenting, when we talk about well, you need to be giving your kids a certain things that we were given as a kid. Well, look around. Most of us are kind of fucked up. Maybe what our parents were doing wasn't the end all be all answer. We should be questioning why we're raising our kids with certain uh, rules and procedures. And so to hear that removal of the should, that's a, great continuation of that line of thinking of, no, maybe I need to be discovering what the, what the reality and what right and wrong is, instead of should and using other people's definitions or my preconceived definitions of how the process
2: should be. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, thanks, I like that. You know, so the, some of the wording I use or I've changed to is, and I say this a lot, you know, um, I'll, you know I'll consider, like I, I'm, I'm open to looking at it differently. I don't have to make a decision right now if I'm going to make a change in how I've been doing something, and then there's things that I you know in the past I've been told or would tell myself that you know that I need I need to do it this way. I need to change it. It's like well, you know, I am a grown person and I've been doing you know like okay in the world. So do I need to make a change right now about some things? Like maybe maybe not, but I know I have enough you know space and place to at least think about it. Just like i tell my patients right it's like you know here's a couple options you know what's you know think about what's best for you at this time if it doesn't work we can do something else
0: it reveals the inner hypocrisy too because i'm always telling my son if you like writing and if you like expression you need to understand linguistics you need to understand how words affect situations and how words play into connotations and how you can limit your perception of the world or your ability to tell a story by limiting your ability to understand and use words so instead of these words find these other words because you can even change entire mind frames just by changing the way you describe something and then to find that this whole time i'm limiting myself with those same exact lack of open terminology and shutting down conversations it, it's funny you know it's
2: a little maybe i need to
0: take my own medicine in
2: this oh, situation oh i oh i see yeah i see yeah i see what you're yeah right and so really kind of what what maybe we we know and again i just met you ed so um is that uh maybe it's more your need of what of what oh, you, yeah. you know you, you want him to do instead because we're not in his brain we're not in this 13 year old brain so i don't i don't know what he feels he needs might says like well that's interesting dad and, and I'll, I'll i'll nod my head sure and that makes sense and i do want to be a writer so, okay, that's the criteria, but um, I don't know. I'm just like, I don't know. But like right now, it seems like a lot.
0: Well, and it's funny because he'll actually verbalize that to me. He'll say, well, you're not a writer. <laughs> I try to be he's like, well, you know, thank you for your opinion, and your expertise, because I, I am a pretty decent writer, but
1: he's
0: like, but thank you. But a lot of your information is rooted in what you experienced. like, how about letting me experience? So, and
2: then he can tell you about his experience. Right. Yes. And you can just like listen to what his experience is without, without, any, um, without any recommendations of how to be better in this moment. I mean, it's just a, if that's something you might want to experiment with.
0: No, absolutely. That's fantastic.
2: Oh, I'd love to hear how it goes.
0: Oh, no, it's not going to happen. I'm sorry. Saying- ah! He's grounded even because we're having this conversation and it makes me look unflattering, he's grounded. So no <gasps> don't know why, or it'll, it'll feel very unrational to him. Say, yeah.
2: That's a fine. tough cookie to crack <laughs> on, yeah, I, just, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I love that, it's like, oh, well, I'm not gonna do it. You
0: know, it's like I told my counselor, it's hilarious. like T.I. Joe said, knowing's only half the battle, the other half is actually applying it to your life and that's, that's where sometimes the hardest part of the battle
2: is. That is the hardest part, that is for sure the hardest part, yeah. But you know, we do have the gift of you know, hopefully, time while we're here, and then whatever we don't take care of this time, according to my dad, who passed away first week of April, who's been checking in with me, um, it's just a just a lovely opportunity, you know, endlessly to uh, just to kind of you know be emotionally and psychologically and healed. Sounds fascinating.
0: Yeah. It is fascinating. I mean, it honestly is. And just hearing you say a lot of this stuff resonates really with me. It's also the, yesterday was the 13th anniversary of my father's passing. So I've been going through a lot of this thought process already. So it's good to, you know, maybe it's kismet that we're having this conversation and a lot of these topics are coming up.
2: Indeed. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, indeed. Uh, Adam, um, if you want to, um, hear some more about or talk more about, uh, you know, uh, offline, of course, about motivational interviewing and clinical practice. Let me know. I got a, I got a whole thing. Absolutely. Okay. You'll like it.
0: Well, yeah. I'm definitely going to look up scheduling a time with you to to actually go through the process sure. as a, because this is where I'm at in my journey anyway. So just self-serving i think this would be great for me and also i would like to record it with your permission to maybe, of course yeah depending on what comes out
2: yeah i'd love to do it Ed. thanks
0: perfect well yeah. i really want to thank you for your time today um on that note i think this is a great place to conclude today's podcast adam do you have any final thoughts or words that you would like to get out before we end today
1: no, just thank you. It was, it was. You know, there's certain conversations that literally energize me, and I'm like buzzing the rest of the day. And this is one of them. So thank I you.
2: The same. Thank you. You can't see me, but I'm, but I'm, I'm bowing to both of you for just being really grateful for this time with you too. Thank you so much.
0: No problem. Thank you for your time. We really appreciate it, and yeah. uh, I look forward to talking to you again. I'll be reaching out to you.
2: Sounds good. Thanks. Have a
0: great day, everybody. You'd be fine if it wasn't for me And I ain't sayin' we can't get along It's easy to forgive you, baby, cause you're wrong